Hi, uh, welcome to The Brook. My name is Muchi KB. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you have a Bible, grab it and meet me in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is where we're going to be for the duration of our time, specifically chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. As always, the words will be on the screen so that we could track through uh, the text together. We are winding down this series, A people, a people, where we have been walking through the marks that mark us and move us forward as we seek to grow a people from all people passionate for God. We've been unpacking the values which are our vehicles for growth personally and collectively. They're how we mature into who God has called us to be. Over these final two weeks, we'll continue to unpack the value that our neighbor's good is as important as our own. Our neighbor's good is as important as our own. It's a value birth from this compelling picture the scriptures consistently offer, this compelling picture that God through Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ, offer this picture of human flourishing where there's peace with God, there's functional life-giving relationship, there's significant purpose, there's common good being shared in its truest, beautiful, most noblest sense, human flourishing. It's birthed from that picture, but it's also birthed from this clear command that's given from Christ to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love them with the sincerity and the dignity that they're due because they're made in the image of God, to love them with the sincerity and the dignity that we would want directed to ourselves. That births this value, our neighbor's good is as important as our own. Now, within every value, there are rhythms, streams, um, actions that cultivate the value that we're called to take. Uh, this week, we're dealing with that action, seeking to serve. Seek to serve. To seek to serve is to take initiative with generosity for the benefit of others. Seeking to serve is taking initiative with generosity for the benefit of others. Generosity and service colliding for the sake of other people. Now, the atmosphere of our current cultural moment lends itself to pushing people towards expressions of generosity and service and even adopting a more servant-oriented lifestyle. I mean, I love it, first of all, <laughs> I love it. And, and it's, it's even showing up in the companies that exist, for-profit philanthropy. You won't find many companies that aren't dialed into some version of for-profit philanthropy. Buy one, we give two. And I love it, it's beautiful, it's rich. And many companies are like that, even if it's just for optics, right? And so you start to do research within some of these companies and you realize there's a prevalence of like trash business ethics and even the products that are being manufactured and if you buy one of they give two towards someplace else they're taking place in what is functionally a sweatshop right but you're like oh man if i buy this cup of coffee you give two more cups to if i buy this cup of coffee you give two cents towards the orphans if i buy this t-shirt then i get a tote bag oh decisions 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 right it's just the atmosphere to be moved towards generosity and service 
even if it's just for optic sakes, it's the atmosphere of the time, the current cultural moment. But what else is in this atmosphere currently, and honestly, it's it's always in the atmosphere, is the type of emotional manipulation associated with generosity and service. And so we emotionally manipulate people to act in ways that we desire. And that, first of all, as frequent as that may be, that is trap. That is, it is problematic. There is not a justification for emotionally manipulating people to action. And regarding generosity and service, it's often emotional manipulation through the embellishment of a need. Like we will find the most rugged um, picture of a desperate situation and a representative of that situation and put it in front of them and then makes it and make it ask. So give because X. That's emotionally manipulative and it's sin, it is wrong. And it's playing on a truth that we know, which is that need should move us to action. Like need should move us to action. We should look at needs and be drawn to, to meet them. It is a critical component. We just know it's not core because that works situationally, but it's not really sustainable. Like, if you are only motivated by needs, needs in front of you are obvious and so you move to meet them, what's around the corner is opting out of service because there comes a point where you get overwhelmed by just the sheer amount, the volume and vastness of needs is overwhelming and gets to a point where like, man, I can't meet them all, so I'll do none of them at all. I will do nothing. Or even if you're so driven to meet needs, it's, it's rooted in activity, not identity. You, so you wanna serve and you wanna just care for those who are hurting, meeting needs all around you. What tends to happen is because they're always right in front of our face and we're driven by activity, like fatigue is always right around the corner. We'll get burnt out because we're going and we're going and we're going because need, let me meet it. Needs should move us to action. They're critical to generosity and service, but they're not core. What's core is love. To be generous and to serve out of a heart of love. That's why even in an atmosphere that's pulling and pushing people towards a more servant-oriented, generous lifestyle, and we know that it's not necessarily distinctly Christian, we gotta come to the agreement that it is definitively Christian. It's our heritage, it's our story, because Christianity offers the clearest, most robust, truest expression and definition of love. And I do desire for us to continue to pursue a more generous, servant-oriented lifestyle. And I wanna preach and, and lead in such a way that fuels that pursuit but I want it to be fueled, not forced. Because truth be told, I want something for us, not from us. And, and that's God, you just search the scriptures and we are constantly confronted with the reality that God calls us to generosity because he wants something for us, not from us. He calls us to generosity often, not because he's trying to get money out of our wallets or our pockets because he's trying to get idols out of our hearts, the gods we make that show up with the decisions we make with our resources. God calls us to service, not because he's in need of help, <laughs> but because he wants to pull us into great joy. 
He wants us to experience the blessing and the promises he attaches to serving well, to seeking to serve. It's all throughout the scriptures. It's a critical paradigm that we need to adopt as we seek to serve. And one of the places that it's illustrated like wonderfully, and it invites us to really step in and find fuel to pursue it is John 13. John 13 captures this demonstration of profound, love-oriented, generous service. It is this familiar story picturing the final moments of Jesus's life and these final moments shared between him and his disciples, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And I just wanna dive into it, pull out some particulars Honestly, that really just calls us to marvel at the greatness of Jesus and then leave us with some considerations that move us to serve well, to seek to serve well. So that'll be the flow of our text and our time to just kind of look at a few of the particulars and some ideas and even implications that are associated with them and then closing with a few considerations. Would you read with me? Um, John 13 verse 1 uh, reads like this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, during supper, when the devil had already put it into heart, of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, uh, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to
to you, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Man, they're, yeah, familiar for so many people, but it's, it's so full. All of this is in the shadow of the cross. All of this is in the shadow of what's coming a few chapters later. All of this is in the shadow of Jesus's pending death for the sake of the world. All of this, everything that we see here exists under that umbrella showing us that even this picture of service should be measured by the cross. The cross is the standard of serving. Point blank, period. And Jesus is the epitome of an unselfish lifestyle and unselfish living. He's the epitome of it. He's the pinnacle of it. And as a result, he's what we should be pattering after. Now, even though that's the case, man, I don't want to merely just pull out some principles that we could say, quote unquote, do these things as you want to improve your serving. Here are some quote unquote truths that transform you into a more servant hearted leader. And I'm not even saying that that's bad per se, I, but man, that ain't touching the scope of the beauty that we just read. In fact, we all should be weary of robbing Jesus of his greatness by just reducing him to a model we pattern our lives after. He's more than that. Before he's a model, he's a champion and he's a savior that we marvel at. And so, if you would allow me, let's just linger in some of the particulars here. Yes, they should cause us to even examine serving and make sure that we have a definition and example that accords with this. But even more than that, they should just move us to just worship and just be in awe of the beauty of Christ. Let's look at some of the particulars and some ideas and implications associated with them. First up is Jesus offers comprehensive cleaning. Yes, this is a statement of humble, generous serving. But it is a symbol of the cross that this whole passage stands under the shadow of. So this idea of cleansing that we get here, this is why he says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, Peter, but you will later. And if I don't wash you, you will have no part of me. And Peter's like, well, I want to be with you. So don't just stop at the feet. Get to my head, my entire body. This is a display of the cleansing that God offers that removes sin from us. It removes the stain that's on our soul. It removes the thing that keeps us separated from God, separated from others, and separated from the promises God makes in relation to both. And so this is scripture. This is from Genesis to Revelation. So even Isaiah chapter one, God is rebuking his people for their injustice. They are unjust people. They are abusing the most vulnerable among them. They're not doing the things God has called them to do. And God is like, you know what? You could keep your fast. 
Keep all of your religious activity. You can stop singing. Keep your praises. Shut your mouth. No more singing in the shower. No more lifting your hands in praise. You stop all of that because it's breaking my heart because you're not broken by the vulnerable among you being cared for. So you just quit all of that. It's wearying me. And then he goes on to say, he's like, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I could wash you and make you white as snow. I could cleanse you from this unrighteousness that is keeping us from intimacy and keeping you from caring for your neighbors. This is Titus chapter three. So Paul, when speaking on salvation, he talks about how the goodness and loving kindness of Christ has appeared to all men. And he says that we are saved. We are drawn into this new relationship with God, this right, beautiful, true experience that we're supposed to have with God. God wants for us. We're drawn into it, not by our works at all, but by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the spirit of God, the cleansing of unrighteousness, the cleansing and removal of the things that keep us from God, from the promises he makes and from serving people the way he would intend. There's this comprehensive cleansing Jesus offers. It's comprehensive because it's continuous as well. So you take this and you make sense of Ephesians chapter five, where Paul writing again, he says that husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, washing them with the water of the word. This consistent, continuous bathing them with the beauty of the promises of God to push them forward towards the life God has for them, to push them forward in the identity that he's called them to. It's this continuous, ongoing move towards life, this comprehensive cleansing. And I, and I say that to say something that's been just deep in my heart. We don't always feel clean. In fact, there's moments where Yes, we, we know that God may love us, but we don't necessarily live out of it because we are face to face with the reality of our sin. We mess up. And in those moments where you have messed up, you have sinned, you really just feel like you're at the mercy of other people. You know what you, know what you tend to do? You know what I tend to do? Like we have a tendency to try to work even harder in those moments because we're really not sure that the person will accept us. We're really not sure that forgiveness is actually on the table. And so we'll work as hard as possible to try to move somebody's heart into a posture of forgiveness towards us or to even have the ammunition to say, at least I tried. So if you don't want me, I tried and you can't put that on me. And it's this weird paradigm we exist in, which is a type of shame and a type of bondage. Consciences are assaulted, never feeling free. But the statement he makes to Peter, I think, is rich. Who's already been bathed? They just need to wash their feet. 
they've already been made clean. Now, John, the disciple that wrote this gospel, also wrote 1 John. So he's hearing this. And you know what he writes in 1 John? 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When we confess, we don't get saved again at all. We just step into the freedom that God offers, this cleaning and removing and progressively moving us towards the heart of God. If you are confronted with the weight of your sin, forgiveness is always on the table. That Jesus moves in a way where he demonstrates that he is ready and willing to forgive before we're willing to even apologize. And he's just moving towards us with that type of forgiveness and love. And so we could walk freely, but you know, and I know, walking in forgiveness is an act of faith. Praise be to God that faith is something that he promises to anyone who asks. And so this first particular that is just, is that Jesus offers comprehensive cleaning, this decisive removal of sin that pulls us into great relationship with God and this ongoing progressive push towards maturity, experiencing the life that God would have for us. He offers comprehensive cleaning, but there's more particulars here. Jesus doesn't just offer this comprehensive cleaning. We get to see that Jesus is preoccupied with their good. In fact, Jesus's preoccupation with their good stands in contrast, glorious contrast with the preoccupations that we tend to have. Now that's seen both in the setting in which this story takes place and some of the conversation that we know is happening here as well, first setting. The chapter, verse one starts off, it says, now when his hour had come, that phrase, hour, in the gospel of John is always, always associated with the crucifixion of Christ. It is associated with this Calvary road, this walk towards unique suffering for the sake of others. And so it's always representing that. And it's always fascinating to see what's going on when this phrase is mentioned or repeated in John. So John chapter two, when this phrase shows up, uh, Jesus's mom, Mary, um, he, she comes to him with a problem that they're at this wedding, this wedding feast and the wine has ran out. And she's like, Jesus, the wine has ran out. And Jesus is like, uh, my hour has not come. What would you have for me? The hour whereby I will secure this glorious, great, ever increasing experience of gladness. What is defined as the marriage supper of the lamb, where me and my people are together in holy covenantal communion, marriage, what all wedding feasts and marriages point to, that moment isn't here yet, but 
you're focused on this moment. I'm always focused on the moments to come in a way that allows me to exist in the moments we are in well. So grab some jugs, grab some water, and keep the party going. And he turns water to wine, but he's, he's focused on how his hour is producing greater greatness. But then you get to John 7, a 30, right? And so in John 7, uh, Jesus has been disrupting the status quo. They're over it. They're over him. They want to kill him. They're seeking to arrest him. But John 7, 30 says that they were unable to arrest him because his hour had not come, which communicates that Jesus wasn't forced into the crucifixion. He walked face forward towards it. He goes on to say this to Pilate when he's standing before Pilate. He says, yo, no one takes my life. I lay it down. You have no power. My hour has not come. And so the fact that this is mentioning here clues us into that the hour is now. The crucifixion is around the corner. Why does that matter regarding what's preoccupying Christ? Think about you. Think about me. Think about humanity. Whenever we are faced with something that is difficult, something that we know is probably going to produce pain, you know what we do? We try and store up on a, as, a, as much like reprieve and rest as we can. We want a breather because we don't know when we'll be able to take our breath again. So we'll take naps. We'll binge off movies. We'll do ex Jesus, this is not Jesus. you doing none of that. He is not napping. He is not binging off this Passover meal. He's not like, yo, pass some more wine, pass some more bread. Let me eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. He is not preoccupied with personal comfort. He is preoccupied with the good of other people, his disciples, even in the midst of what is going to be a tremendous experience of excruciating pain. He is not preoccupied with personal comfort, rather the good of others. The setting enhances the greatness of Christ in this moment and what is preoccupying him. But it's not just the setting. It's the conversations that are taking place. So Luke 22 also gives us another vantage point of this scene. And in Luke 22, verse 24, it talks about that as they were eating, an argument arose among them of who was the greatest. Think about this. Jesus has been inviting them into this experience of life, this glorious picture of the kingdom. He has been calling them to go express it. He has told them about this hour that is coming. The hour is now here. And what is preoccupying them is not the greatness of the kingdom. What is preoccupying them is not even the greatness of the king. What is preoccupying them is not the good of other people. What is preoccupying them is their own personal greatness. And that's not surprising because that's our story, right? We far too often are preoccupied by our own personal greatness and our own place in this larger story called life. And if we just trace how that preoccupation shows up, if we're honest, we'll find that we're constantly orbiting around this question of significance. Do I matter? And as we orbit around that question, we tend to be preoccupied in a way that causes us to neglect others who matter. Yet Jesus, in the midst of this 
scene. He gets up, he grabs a basin and he starts washing feet. The significance of this moment is not lost on Peter. He's like, nah, what are you doing? Because feet washing was an act of care to care <laughs> for the practical needs of someone. But not only was it an act of care, like a practical act of care, it was a practical demonstration of somebody's significance. So the act of feet washing was often re like relegated to slaves, to servants, to people within a lower social economic space. And so Jesus is saying, he's first of all, he's shattering all of that. But he is saying, hey, man, you, you matter. You matter. What's going on with you matter. But there's a greater example that's coming. Let me show you a more excellent way. The particular here is that Jesus is preoccupied with their good. And it stands in contrast with the things that tend to preoccupy us. There's more particulars here. Another particular that's here is not just the setting, right? But it is, it is actually the people. Jesus washes the feet of his betrayers. All of them. All of them. So he is going to walk this Calvary road. And as he's walking this Calvary road towards a cross, every single one of his disciples is running in the other direction, with the exception of John, who wrote this, the beloved disciple. But everybody else Jesus is walking this way. They're running the other way. Peter, not, don't just wash my feet, wash my entire body. You say that now, Peter. But you know what you're going to say in a few hours? I've never met this man. Well, didn't we see you with him one time? Didn't we see you, quote unquote, in church with your hands up singing? Ah, nah, that was Photoshop. I don't know this man. Judas. Judas, when the 30 for 30 is written about you, it will tell how you betrayed all of our memories, all of our good times, the entirety of our smiles. You betrayed life with me with a kiss. You traded eternity for 30 pieces of silver. You traded Eternal joy for temporary pleasure. What a kiss, man. What a kiss. Judas. It should not be lost on us that he washes all of their feet. And that significant act should sear our souls with the greatness of Christ because it is so counterintuitive to us. This is counterintuitive care. This is counterintuitive to who we really are. So Lion King is one of my favorite movies of all time. Top five of all time, point blank period. And there's that scene in Lion King where Mufasa and Scar are together. It's after Jesus, uh, not Jesus, not Jesus. <laughs> although Simba is a type of, anyway. It's after Simba goes into the elephant graveyard, Mufasa rescues him, he's trying to climb back up, and then he looks up at Scar, he's like, brother, brother, help me. And, and Scar grabs his paws, looks him in the eyes, long live the king, throws him off, Mufasa dies, me watching that as a kid, my eyes start sweating, oh my, God. Mufasa, right? And we read 
or watch that story and we immediately like identify with Mufasa and we identify with Simba, we identify with the heroes of the story and that's really any movie, any story that we read or we watch and the problem is, nah, we're Scar. We're Scar. That's who we really are. We have this wicked core in us that left unchecked would do the most dastardly of deeds. And so when we see this, we need to know we don't sniff towards this actually. We don't wash the feet. We don't serve and care for those who are going to wish harm. Or, we don't do that. You know what we would have done? We would have been like, oh, Judas, I know that you're going to go walk and you're going to go betray me. So you know what? Instead of washing your feet, I'm probably going to put them in handcuffs if I don't cut them off. That's what we would do. This is counterintuitive care that Jesus is exhibiting in his generous service. He washes the feet of his betrayers. Last particular before we move to close. What he also does, Jesus demonstrates the appropriate way to use power. So Luke again, within the argument of their greatness, Jesus is going to respond and he's going to say that we don't lord over people. Now we serve. Here, Jesus is going to, is going to say this again. He's going to be like, hey, if I'm your teacher and I'm doing this, what should you expect for yourself? This seed is the expression of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. It is known as the kenosis, the emptying of Christ, where it says that, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, the humility of Christ, who though was God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't lay hold of his full rights, his full privileges, the fullness of his power in the way that we would rather. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. The appropriate usage of power is seeking the well-being of another person. And we're in a space where there's a lot of conversation regarding intersections of power and ethnicity and identity and culture and status. Those are worthy conversations. But in the midst of all of those conversations, if we don't have this standard, we will surely be lost. The appropriate usage of power will forever be to pour one's life out for the sake of another to serve, to seek to serve, taking initiative with generosity for the benefit of others. And hear me, no matter where you are in your social economic status, because you are made in the image of God and God gives good gifts generously, every single human has some type of power. The question is, what will you do with the power you've been given? Will it be this or will it be securing a life for yourself because of fear that no one else will take a, like, care of you or fear that someone else will take advantage of you? What will we do with the power we've been 
given Jesus is portrayed a more excellent way. Some closing considerations. We should marvel at all of these particulars. Like this should move us to marvel. But again, he is our model. So we should pattern our lives after this. And Jesus says, go do likewise. You ought to do this. This is a Christian life. The Christian life is a call to service. It is a call to take initiative with generosity for the benefit of others. But it is not service that is driven primarily by need. It is not service that takes place because of emotional manipulation. It is service that is anchored in genuine love. So this passage starts and ends with love. It says, his hour had come and he had loved them. He loved them to the end. And then you get to the end where he talks about this idea of, I'm going to give you a new commandment that you would love one another the same way that I have loved you. There is just this comprehensive picture of authentic, sincere love that seeks to serve, that considers another person, that says, I am free because I'm rooted in God. It's love. The Christian life is a call to service, but a service that's rooted in genuine love. Love seeks to serve. Consider that. Is love motivating us? That could only take place if we're constantly being rooted in it, reminding ourselves of the goodness of God and how he lavishes love on us. That's the consideration, last consideration. Serving implies inconvenience. Like it always comes with a personal expense. Like comfort, cost financially, it comes with an expense because serving is sacrifice. And when we realize that, it moves us into a place where we're freed from the things that inhibit our service, like selfishness. Selfishness is a thief and it's an assassin. You know, it, it's a thief in that it robs us of something beautiful and it's an assassin in that it kills something that's precious. What it robs us us of is what Jesus says in verse 17. If you do this, you are blessed. That there's a different level of satisfaction and wholeness and good you experience if you do this. Yet selfishness would rob you of that experience. It would rob others of the experience as well. But to serve and to see that as I serve, I will be inconvenienced is to war against the residue of selfishness and to step courageously into the place of sacrifice, because that's what love does. Shadow of the cross, our standard. Would we not be the people who settle for less than the standard because it's easy? But would we be the people that are just so consumed and gripped by the picture God has given, the opportunities that he places in front of us, and the paradigm that we exist to know God and to make him known by seeking to serve and be freed, man, be freed. Would that be what marks us? Not summon for less, but stepping into the standard well, let's pray. Jesus, we need you. You do all of this for us. Would we rest in it? And would it fuel us as we move forward 
In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.